Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession over 100 years ago. Let's step back into the ring, back into time, as we get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, I got to tell you, you really shook up the wrestling world in the last stud cast, talking about and telling how Vince McMahon Jr. in 1989, to save a little money and avoid the boxing and wrestling commission taxes on each live event across America, chose to say, Vince chose to say, the sport was not real and was scripted and he did it all under oath. <laughs> I did get quite a response, didn't I, Dave? <laughs> wow, my, my, uh, my social media is blown up, man. I'm telling you. So, uh, I would say so, Stead. Listen, enough to break your all-time Studcast record for listeners in the first week. So I can't imagine where you're going this week. Well, uh, this subject, man, all started week, uh, you know, weeks ago after about the Boxing and Wrestling Commission. Uh, that's where all this began. It didn't start with uh, Vince, uh, actually, you know, and uh, and it's because uh, the commissions were all across America, and, and uh, we were talking about how they were created and how they were destroyed. And uh, my grandfather, Roy, created one of the first of these Boxing and Wrestling Commissions in 1935 in Tennessee. So we've been talking about them and the, and the new hidden history lessons that uh, we're doing now in each of these stud casts. And uh, actually, we've done four episodes now, four weeks worth of these. And uh, it's uh, it has been a really, really phenomenal day of response <laughs> that we've been getting from it. Uh, uh, the last stud cast, it basically exploded, man, when we focused on much more than just how Vince Jr., decided to handle the additional state commission tax in New Jersey. That's basically what the subject was last week. It went far beyond his, his uh, to his wife's and, uh, and to a certain head employee uh, in the company uh, getting before the court and admitting that wrestling wasn't real and entirely scripted and to avoid any additional tax in many states, obviously, across America on his, uh, on his live events, events, you know, basically, uh, he wanted to get away from that tax big time. Uh, and I, I can't understand it because he was making some big money. Uh, why he wanted to do that uh, and uh, how it affected him is pretty dramatic. 
Wow. All right, you definitely took it to another level, stud. You made an extremely persuasive argument that McMahon's admission of the fact wrestling was not real was a possible turning point in the sport's history itself, and then then you proved it, you, and you proved it in a ton of ways. Well, you know, the response to that proof, Dave, has, has blown up. I think that's what's blown up the Internet for me and the number of fans. I now, you know, the, I now have around the world a lot more fans than I had uh, during the last couple of uh, studcasts we've been doing. So Vince McMahon has always been a controversial character in the sport. But what is happening now with him is so salacious that uh, I don't even want to talk about that at all. <laughs> all right. I don't blame you, Ron. I'm not surprised that you would not touch what the world is saying today about Vince McMahon Jr. I thought your proof last studcast about about a false Google statement in particular saying after Vince admitted wrestling was scripted, fans didn't care. And the sport was more popular now than it had ever been before, even before that announcement. Yeah, you know, I had intended to stick with the Boxing and Wrestling Commission incident concerning Vince. Uh, but uh, during my research, I discovered, uh, you know, something much more interesting and something that was totally incorrect, this Google statement that, uh, you know, wrestling is more popular than ever when, since Vince came along. So uh, I finished my goal, uh, basically, of presenting how McMahon Jr. exposed wrestling uh, purposely, saying by saying it was scripted uh, to, to line his greedy pockets, basically, and to get some extra money off his live events by avoiding to having to pay that state athletic commission tax. Because after his admission, wrestling was no longer considered a legitimate sport. So I think he underestimated the impact of that statement. You know, actually, I know he did because wrestling has never been the same again. Admitting it wasn't real killed wrestling for most of the longtime fans worldwide, and they were never going to come back. And I also know because my social media sites went crazy after the last studcast that we hit all-time record numbers and that we're not, we're not going to talk about the subject I was going to do today on the relationship between wrestling and carnivals. Uh, I said last week, we're going to do wrestling and carnivals this week with my grandfather, Roy. Mm -hmm. But because of the way my internet is blown up, uh, uh, you know, we're going to get into a different, we're going to go back to McMahon here at least one more time. And uh, we'll get to that new, new topic, uh, wrestling and carnivals and how all that started back in 1800s, late 1800s. So this studcast, we're going to continue on the fact that McMahon Jr.'s admission of wrestling being scripted rather than real, not only did it make the sport bigger than ever, as claimed by Google, right? That was their claim. But quite to the contrary, it made it much smaller than before Vince McMahon took over professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. Did a little bit toward proving that last week. We're going to get into it big time this one. Well, it sure seems like it. Obviously, this is going to be another very interesting studcast. Besides a follow-up on whether wrestling was bigger before Vince Jr. killed the territories. So we're going to find out about all that. But where else are we going to ride today, Stud? 
Well, given the time, uh, we're going to cover the huge one-night tournament, Mobile, Alabama's main auditorium, well, on February the 19th, 1980. And we're going to see uh, who is going to be meeting the legendary Harley race for a shot at the 10 pounds of gold, the NWA World Championship belt. And we'll also break down the TV for the card, the results of the matches, and the attendances in all three major southeastern markets. And if we got enough time, we're going to do a learning trick. All right, good deal. So knowing you, I think we're about to have some fun, Ron. Where are you going to start to end your look at the size of the TV audiences and the arena attendances before and after Vince Jr. said the sport was scripted and before he completely took over what we now call or knew as professional wrestling? Well, I'm going to do this because of the responses I got, obviously, from so many dedicated fans who produce facts, uh, a couple of them, that further prove what I said last week is definitely correct, but not only correct, but maybe uh, not as much as I said it was. So the following, Dave, is just one sample of how one, fa- one fan felt about what I had to say in the last Tudcast. This came from a Facebook fan. His name is Jim Harder. Jim says, Ron, I agree with you 100%. I'm 60 years old and grew up in the Chicago area. A promoter named Bob Luce worked with both Vern Gagne of the ADA, AWA in Minneapolis and Dick Atlas in Indianapolis to hold huge wrestling cards in Chicago during the warmer months at Kaminsky Park and Soldier Field that drew 30,000 or more people. They also had cards at the International Amphitheater that sold out the houses. They, they had wrestling shows on channels 26 and 44. Despite both being UHF stations, thousands and thousands watched. Even the media critics who pretended not to write, like wrestling knew who Bergania, Dick the Bruiser, the Crusher, Bobby Heenan, Black Jack Lanza, Nick Bockwinkel, Ray Stevens, Mad Dog Vachon, Black Jack Mulligan, and so many others were. So I, this, this gentleman says, I would venture to say at least 500,000 people out of a metropolitan area of 3 million watch wrestling at least occasionally, and if not each week. People loved it, obviously, from the kids to the old people. Many lost interest after that weirdo, this is his words now, Vince McMahon came in and uh, basically used the bathroom on it, no pun intended, right? So this is further proof of the greater success of the sport before McMahon Jr. took over wrestling. So let's start with his TV figures. Based upon the facts that events were being held with the cooperation of three promoters, and one of them being Vern Gagne tells me this was probably this time frame in which these three promoters were working together was probably between 1985 and 1987. I say that because Vern contacted me in 1987 and he set up a meeting with me and Jerry Jarrett uh, in Minnesota. We both went to Minnesota, Jerry and I. We discussed some kind of partnership to fight McMahon Jr. That sounds very similar to the one Mr. Harder describing here in Chicago. So another thing Mr. Harder says that tells me this was somewhere between 1985 and 87 is the fact that Chicago, Indianapolis, and Ganya's AWA territory 
had formed, formed a partnership to compete with Vince Jr. in Chicago. So Mr. Harder said they were using TV matches on two UHF TV stations, channel 26 and 44. That meant they were not on any of the three major networks, as McMahon was. I think he was on NBC at this point, or about to be there. I know mm -hmm. he was there by yep. uh, 85 or by 87. Yes. But he, he was on the much smaller. This guy, this guy says uh, they were still on the much smaller local UHF TV stations. Uh, obviously, they had weak signals compared to the major networks, and probably they were the fourth or fifth TV stations in that market before cable TV uh, got to be nationwide, which is going to happen in the late 80s anyway. So using Mr. Harder's numbers of 500,000 TV viewers watching wrestling each week out of a possible 3 million total viewers, based on my calculations last week, uh, that would indicate that 6% of that market's total viewers were watching these three promoters' products. And that was just two, on just two UHF stations, the smallest of the TV stations in the market. My figures last week showed 8% watching the Continental Territory and 10 stations down south. But in order to be as realistic as possible, I lowered that number. When we computed this last week, we talked about this, how, how many people were watching it on TV as compared to watching now. So I dropped that 8% number that my territory was getting, thinking mm -hmm. it was a little higher than the others would be, and I lowered that down to 4% against the actual 8 that we were doing. So if Chicago had just two UF, UHF TV stations, mm -hmm. uh, they were getting 6% of that area's population watching wrestling each week. I definitely underestimated the actual number of people watching in the entire country. Hmm. I'm not really familiar with Chicago. This gentleman is. So so that 6% of the audience, the people that live there, that were watching wrestling, that was more fans watching wrestling on TV, obviously, than the 4%. I end up saying that was what they were going to be watching nationwide. So based upon the Chicago 6% number, and my continental territory of 8%, which we both know is has actually happened. So I'm going to raise my calculation, and we're going to talk about this again this week, mm. of the number of viewers across America in 1985, from 4%, like I had talked about last week, just 2% more to 6%, up to basically where Chicago was, but still below where I was in the South. And, uh, you know, the, the, that's all the people... Uh, so we're going to say 6% of the people in America, as uh, across America, watching uh, wrestling before Vince McMahon. Mm. So that's going to dramatically change this week's calculation of the total number of people watching wrestling across the country. Of the 238 million population in 1985 living in the country mm. at 4% watching, that was prediction last week. That would have said there were 9,520,000 total watching uh, every week in, across America before Vince. Wow. Using that more likely figure now of 6%, uh, that would bring that figure up to actually 14,280,000 watching TV wrestling every week. Wow. I don't doubt that that's, <laughs> that probably happened. So compare that number to the four million three thousand 
that was watching today's wrestling in the last, and they figured that I had last week. That came straight off of Google. Uh, you Google it, you can find out how many people were watching. Mm-hmm. And what, what what we did looked at last week is we took the last week in 2023, and uh, they had total across the country 4,000,000 people watching. That means there were 10 million more fans watching TV in 1985 than the number that was that they were watching in 2023. That also means 10 million people walked away from wrestling after Vince did what he did. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's unbelievable. I mean, you, without knowing that, you think, wow, 4 million, that's a lot of people. No, it's not. It's really not. Considering the, the local TV stations that served so many people across the nation were just skipped. The numbers were just absolutely taken away. So anyway, that's a that's a huge number. 10 million more we're watching wrestling every week in 1985 that are watching then then are watching today. All right, anything else on this subject stud? This has really been fascinating. Well, yeah, man. We we've looked at the TV numbers and the differences between 1985 and today's TV numbers. So, let's find out about the attendance differences between the year 1985 before Vince McMahon Jr. killed the territories. And uh, and we're going to con- let's let's compare that to today's attendance numbers uh, for the total number of tickets sold for all the operating companies, including the Indies. And uh, so I received uh, more interesting information from another Facebook friend that had the information on this this part of it. And uh, he's a gentleman named William Renz, and uh, he had discovered some new and correct statistics on today's wrestling attendances. And when you see how many people attended live wrestling shows on a weekly basis in the territory days, as compared to the modern day, the difference is staggering. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, You know, so Mr. (laughs) Rim's numbers in 1985 were based upon some of my numbers. With 20 plus, uh, I think we talked last week uh, about 20 plus territories running six nights a week, you know, and uh, so in his yeah, that's he took those numbers of 20 territories running six nights a week. And even if you lowball the average attendance to say only 2000 people were at each of those shows. And that's really lowballing it because a lot of those shows were 10,000, you know, and very mm-hmm. few of them were mm-hmm. down in the 2000 range. Mm-hmm. And if you multiply that 2000 people at each one of those shows by 120 nationwide shows uh, running weekly, that means that 240,000 tickets were sold weekly to wrestling in 1985. Now, you take that 240 totally weekly attendance and multiply it by the 52 weeks of the year, and that is 12,480,000 total tickets sold per year in 1985. Wow. Now, uh, Mr. Renzi continued here, uh, you know, and he, he says, uh, Keep in mind, I used the very low end for my numbers. There were more territories than 20, and many ran two shows on Saturday and Sunday, Mm. and the bigger ones ran two cities every night. So it's very conceivable that the number of tickets sold annually could be closer to 20 million for the average wrestling attendance yearly during the territory era. So now let's compare the attendances for the Wrestling companies in business in 2023. Uh, WWE sold 1.7 million 
1,700,000 tickets. AEW sold 500,000 tickets, and most of those were in England. Impact Wrestling sold 300,000 tickets, and Indies, little small indie operations all across America, about 200,000. That means that in 2023, 2,700,000 tickets were sold by wrestling companies uh, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in America. In 1985, 12,480,000 tickets were sold before McMahon killed the territories. The bottom line, man, is basically, you know, it's pretty simple. Uh, bottom line is the territories sold 9,780,000 more tickets in 1985 than all the wrestling companies sold in 2023. So that's almost... 10 million more tickets sold in 85 than was sold in 2023. And I'd like to thank Mr. Reen for your input here uh, because uh, I wouldn't have had these figures and I couldn't have, uh, I couldn't have said that without, uh, without having these figures that, that are, that are honest. That's a, that's a, that's, that's a terrific segment. You just dropped on us. Thanks uh, to that gentleman. I've been trying to keep, keep up with these numbers compared to last week. Can you break down the huge difference in last week's TV numbers and the new ones today and add the ticket sales difference that you didn't do last week? Oh, yeah. You, you, you mean make it simple, Dave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really simplify it. You know, <laughs> what was the exact, you know, so you, you want to know exactly the difference between 1985 before McMahon and uh, 2023. Uh, what, what was going on, and, and I definitely can. Uh, compared 1985 ticket sales to 2023 ticket sales, just said a second ago, there was a 9,780,000 more tickets sold in the territory days than in 2023. And with the TV audience, in the total mm. TV audience, comparing 1985 mm. to 2023, in 1985, 14,280,000 people watch wrestling weekly. In 2023, 4,000,000 watched in the last week of 2023, and that's basically what their figures were. There might have been a million more some weeks, uh, but uh, that's it's, it's so, so in that 38-year period from 1985 to 2023, wrestling, today's wrestling TV audience has dropped 10 million customers, 10,173,000 fans. What you said basically a minute ago, Dave, <laughs> almost 10 million more tickets were sold in 1985 than they sold last year. Wow. 2023. Wow. Almost 10 million fans watching wrestling on TV disappeared between <laughs> 1985 and 2023. God. That makes it crystal clear, I think, that Vince McMahon Jr. has failed to improve anything about the sport. I mean, he's messed up all the other parts of it, but obviously he's messed this part of it, too. And if you think these numbers aren't bad enough, take into consideration, Dave, that the country grew during these years uh, from 1985 to 2023 by close to 100 million people. Population-wise, yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Population wise. Wow. You know, so, uh, you know, so he lost 10 million TV viewers while the country grew by 100 million people. 
I tell you what, that's really fascinating. And it's weird to think about those kind of numbers. People who don't know have no idea what was taken away from these small markets over the years and how Vince really just reduced the size of the funnel down to almost nothing and took it all for himself as he just pillaged other well, all of the TV markets that, that were once just terrific, just fantastic, and stood on their own and made local people lots of money. A really fantastic job, Stud, of finding the numbers to prove even Google can be wrong. All right, we're close enough. Let's get a break in. Let's do that. And when we return after the break, we'll go to mid-February 1980 with a huge tournament. We're going to see who's getting the shot I love when we're talking about the King Harley race and the NWA championship that is coming up after the break. When this studcast continues. Hey everybody, David Summers again. And Ron wants me to thank everybody who contacted him on his social media sites about the recent studcast that mentioned Vince McMahon Jr. He's been inundated by responses and apologies to all. He has not been able to respond to as he usually does. Ron very much appreciates all your comments and all of your support. You're making his studcast even bigger than it's ever been. After more than six years and 338 episodes. Without your wonderful support, there would be no studcast. Thanks, everybody. All right, welcome back. It's another tremendous ride in the first part of this studcast, Ron. You are single-handedly proving that even Google has some facts incorrect when it comes to professional wrestling so as we get into the second half of this studcast where where are we riding from here well we're going to talk man about the big card in mobile alabama in that main arena beautiful beautiful facility for the second week in a row this is going to be our second week in a row in that building and uh the night uh, was february 19th uh, 1980 a tuesday night the main arena was almost full uh, last week, uh, we had 9,100 fans in that 10,000-seat arena, uh, and the week before to see two cage matches and and the more and a and a really good card below that. This time, the card was completely different. It was going to set up a rare appearance from the NWA World Champion Harley Race, which is true. We rarely got Harley, uh, and as we continued to grow and get better down there in that territory. We got more and more dates on Harley and on Flair when Flair became champion. So this card was going to find the champion's challenger for the belt the following week. Harley's coming to town. Who's going to wrestle him? That's the whole question. Mm-hmm. So this was this event was a one-night tournament, had 12 men in it, going to have 11 total matches to find out who's going to get there and who's going to be the champion, meet right. the champion. Wow, this is going to be great. I love those one-night tournaments. So who was wrestling who in this one, Stud? Well, the first tournament match was the Big C versus Charlie Cook. Charlie Cook had just come back. Uh, Big C had only been there about three weeks, actually. So uh, both of these guys are fairly new. But Charlie Cook was a big star there. Uh, Big C's a masked guy. Uh, Second match was former NWA world champion, Luthez, taking on the United States junior heavyweight champion, Tony Charles. Uh, third match was Eddie Boulder against Randy Rose. 
Fourth match was my brother Robert facing Norvell Austin. The fifth match was me against Jimmy Golden. And the sixth and final first round match was Joe LaDuke fighting the Southeastern champion Mongolian Stomper managed by Don Carson. And I say fighting because that's what they always did, man. <laughs> and that's all they seemed to want to do with each other was the fight and see who could, who could get the bloodiest. So 11 matches in all, and the last man standing is going to get the shot at the NWA title of Harley Race. Wow. The match that caught my eye on this card was Tony Charles and Lou Thez. Hard to imagine that one. All right, so how about the TV to promote and set up a big card like this? Well, this TV opened up with Charlie Platt uh, welcoming everyone, saying that this week's championship match on TV, because we were, this was February, and we were doing a championship match on television every week to try to bump those ratings as much as we could, that this week's uh, championship match on TV was going to be for the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship, and that meant the champion, Tony Charles, is going to be defending right there on TV, uh, and, and he said that this is going to be the first match of the day. Well, the studio, they loved that. You know, they popped on that right away. So then, then he followed up with an announcement about the upcoming Southeastern one-night tournament, Mobile, Alabama. We talked about it in the general portion of the program because we felt like that we could bring in people from Dothan and from Montgomery as well, all of the areas, because this was the only place it was going to happen. It's going to be one championship title defense, and, uh, you know, uh, we intentionally, when I talked to Charlie and set this up to open the show, mm. I wanted to let everybody know that uh, there's a big match coming in Mobile. Mm. So then uh, the Mobile, and he added for that reason, because the tournament was going to be all single matches, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, there, there's just going to be one guy, Russell Harley, that's for sure. And uh, to get that championship match, that uh, he would be during this program, they were going to see all single matches today. And uh, to get things started off, he said, I have a special a special guest uh, that's uh, going to join me for this first match. And then he introduced the former and the, ba and the first ever NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Lou Thez. And Lou got an even bigger pop <laughs> than, the, than the, uh, the opening two pops. Uh, so. and, and Lou looked great. I mean, he was in tremendous shape still at this point. I don't know what his age was. I was going to ask. Wow. But I, I'll tell you, give you an idea. When he won that first NWA World Championship crown, that was in 1948. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're in 1980. Oh, my God. Okay. And he is still in great shape. And uh, so the studio crowd... They greeted him, man, as if he was still the world champion. I mean, they they were like, wow, impressed. He looked unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So, so the the and Charlie and the Lou had a brief conversation, uh, in in which Charlie kind of informed all of them watching that Lou wasn't just there to help with the TV commentary; mm -hmm. that he was actually in the tournament, and uh, so. That got another big hand. I mean, you know, I'm sure the fans were like, they were blown away like I was. I mean, how can he still do it, right? You know, so they 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 got another big hand, and then the bell rang for the first match. Wow. So uh, 
Tony Charles, when he popped out of the dressing room door, wearing his United States Junior Heavyweight Championship belt and headed to the ring, well, it was another big pop from the crowd. I mean, we've got three or four pops, and we're probably three minutes into the show. Wow. I remember seeing Luthez, and I was a young guy, and I I thought, okay, wow, this guy really is a legend. And, And as a kid, I remember seeing it. Then when I was a little older, I remember seeing Luthez who still looked fantastic, and he just had an aura and appeal about him that everybody thought, yeah, that guy's a champion. Well, we all knew he had been a champion, and he still looked like one. So uh, guessing the age, it, it probably it just doesn't matter, Ryan. So I, I think that's pretty amazing, just having a legend like that around, and you wrestled him no telling how many times. Okay, uh, back to Tony. Who was Tony wrestling? Well, we wanted these TV championship matches to be really, really good. Uh, you know that the you can't boost your ratings if you don't have top-notch stuff. So uh, Rob and I, man, we were both watching this. Tony went to the ring. He's there. He don't know who he's wrestling at this point, and uh, we both smiled uh, because uh, Randy Rose came out of the dressing room. Randy Rose, he had been wrestling that week. In fact, four days earlier, had a really nasty match with Randy Rose, and. Uh, and the uh, camera was on Tony, and it, you got a smile on Tony's face. He was happy to see him, like, wow, I get him, I hands on him again. <laughs> you know, and, and they had, uh, you know, like I said, a, a really nasty match four days earlier in Mobile. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and then that one, Rose got disqualified. So Lou was extremely familiar with Tony Charles. I was amazed at how much Lou knew about Tony Charles because Lou wrestled all over the world. He wasn't just a star in America. He was a star in Europe. He was a star in Australia, in Japan. Uh, he, he went everywhere. And so, you know, uh, so he let everybody know that he had the utmost respect for Tony Charles and that he had known him for more than 20 years. I never knew that, man. You know, and, uh, and he said, uh, you know, uh, he, he said, I wrestled in Europe, uh, you know, uh, 30 times in my life, right? So... Uh, so, you know, uh, and, you know, and Tony Charles was a huge star in Europe. So uh, so it wasn't far into the match then that, uh, that Mr. Thez began to get some respect, though, for this young Randy Rose. He watched a little bit of it. And then, you know, and, and Tony had this way of wrestling in which he, he kind of mesmerized the people uh, watching. Uh, he had all these tosses and these different types of, different forms of moves that they'd never seen before, you know, and, uh, but the match ended, uh, this match went 20 minutes. That was a time limit draw. Uh, it was for the United States junior heavyweight championship. There wasn't a winner. It ended up a draw. And as Lou was leaving the set, Charlie invited him. He said, uh, why don't you join me later for the personality profile? Which hmm. I thought was a great idea. I mean, wow, what better? You got an opportunity to talk to one of the greatest of all time. So um, that uh, that was a nice deal. Oh, no doubt. Pretty cool. All right, so who was in the second match? Uh, Jimmy Golden with Norvell standing at ringside. And uh, Robert and I joined Charlie because I'm going to end up wrestling Jimmy Golden in the tournament. Robert's going to end up wrestling Norvell Austin in the tournament. So these two were our first-round opponents in the tournament. and But we didn't get much time, basically, to talk about any of this because, uh, you know, 
Jimmy would say, wow, wow, he was crazy, man. I mean, he just, he beat this guy unmercifully. And, uh, you know, he was ready. I mean, and obviously uh, so was Novell. Every guy, everybody got primed for these type of tournaments. Yeah? Not just the fans love these tournaments, but the wrestlers love these these type of tournaments as well. So, uh, so Lou then uh, joined Charlie. Uh, next up was the personality profile, and Lou sat down with Charlie Pratt. And they had a very interesting conversation about Lou. Uh, they talked basically a little about his age, you know, and uh, and uh, and that uh, the fact that they, I think Charlie asked him one of the questions was, uh, Lou, uh, why did you want to be in this tournament, right? So uh, he told Charlie that it was because he wanted to get one last shot at that NWA world title belt. <laughs> and he says, especially now, he says, if you've seen it, it's, the, it's 10 pounds of gold. It's the most beautiful belt ever. And, and that, wasn't a, <laughs> that wasn't an over-the-top statement. I mean, it was truly the one, I think, the most beautiful wrestling belt ever. So, uh, you know, uh, Lou says, you know, I don't think I'm finished, Charlie. Uh, you know, I, I think I've still got some matches left in me. So uh, toward the end of the personality profile, and everybody in those stands, then the pictures there next to it, they were just dead silent. They were so into this interview. To hear from this guy is truly an amazing thing. And uh, so, but then out comes Jimmy Golden, Novell Austin, and Randy Rose come right over to the set from their dressing room on the far side of the studio, and they interrupt the conversation. And uh, and Jimmy, and I think uh, Jimmy, and I believe it was Norville said some of it, they made some remarks right directly to Lou's face about how old he was and him being an over-the-heel wrestler. <laughs> so, <laughs> so me and Robert back in the dressing room, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. I mean, Lou's liable to take care of all three of them, right there, you know. <laughs> And I can't have that happen, right? So I says to Rob, I say to Rob, we got to go, <laughs> let's go over there. So uh, we went over and kind of, uh, you know, backed those guys off, you know, because uh, I thought, man, we can't have Lou get it. Either he's going to embarrass uh, the, these guys or he's going to embarrass us. <laughs> so, so, uh, so it was kind of an odd situation, but uh well, once me and Rob got there, and then, you know, there's there stands uh, Golden and, uh, and Norvell and Randy Rose, who was a real cocky guy. Uh, that, yeah. You know, I mean, he was always had a lot of heat, but at uh -huh. this point, he's really becoming a strong heel in the territory. And, uh, you know, there they stand, uh, look, kind of looking down at Lou. He's still sitting down. Well, we by the time we got there, he was standing up. I was like, oh, I had I stood in front of him, like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> Let's don't go any further than that. But uh, people on the bleachers, they lit up. <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, what's going to happen here? Kind of like me, I had the same question in my mind. <laughs> so, so then the next match on the card was the Mass Big C's. It was his second match on TV, uh, and uh, Charlie Cook, uh, you know. Uh, was going to be uh, his opponent in the tournament. So uh, Charlie Cook, uh, uh, he was in the first round, going to be in the first round of Big C. He went to sit with Charlie, to join Charlie and make some comments about the Big C. And he wasn't there very long because the Big C, you know, 
he kind of took care of business pretty quick too, man. And uh, and the and the thing that impressed me about his match, the Big C, is he won this one. He didn't use any black glove. He didn't need the black glove. He dominated. He had a young guy, and he dominated him, and, <laughs> and uh, really took advantage of him more than dominating him. Uh, you know uh, that he he took advantage of this kid. So then the last match uh, was with Joe Duke who was really over at this time, man. I mean, he was really on fire in the territory. Uh, Don Carson, the Mongolian stalker, they were supposed to go to the set, but they didn't go to the set uh, to, to be with Charlie. They went to the side of the ring and stood there while Joe wrestled them. You know, and basically they wanted to try to distract him, maybe uh, intimidate him a little bit or whatever, you know. <laughs> but uh, you didn't intimidate Joe Duke very easily. <laughs> he didn't, he, that wasn't going to work, you know. So, and, and he let him know. He looked at him during the course of the match that he's having, and he didn't. He played with the guy he had because he was going to beat him whenever he got ready, and he kind <laughs> of enjoyed uh, jawing with the uh, with the stomper and then when with uh, with Carson there. Mm-hmm. So basically, he didn't mind that they were at ringside, and he and the stomper, you know, they had, they had, I don't know how to put this in any other way, but uh, they had basically, basically tasted each other's blood, man, for the last seven weeks. Every match they had in seven weeks had blood in it. They had bled more. My gosh, I don't know how much they, how much blood they lost. Wow. Uh, this to me, uh, this period, this seven week period here, I'm talking about. This is. They've been there together seven weeks in a row. Uh, I think it was one of the bloodiest feuds in the sports history. Mm-hmm. If, they, if there's a way of gauging how much blood was lost, I think that would be one of the biggest in history. So LeDuc, uh, at the end of it, he got ready to finish his guy, and he, he bear-hugged him and, uh, and, and uh, beat him with the bear hug. But while he had him in the bear hug, <laughs> He, he walked him over to where Stomper and Carson were standing, and you could hear him really loud. He goes, uh, he goes, hey, you guys want some? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's screaming, oh, he's giving up, and, they, and the referee's not paying any attention. He's trying to keep the, keep something else from happening. So. Wow. So it was a pretty interesting little match. In a bloody feud like that, I wonder if you can gauge also how it – how it dominated, did it dominate the TV ratings? And I bet it did. Another great TV, no doubt. What were the results of the matches in the tournament? And let's find out who won the shot at Harley Race one week after the tournament. Well, in, in, uh, in case, of, you know, uh, whether we're run, maybe we're running short a little time, I'm going to be kind of brief, but, uh, you know, uh, I. They, 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 the tournament was absolutely a, a tremendous, amazing tournament. And it had a lot of strange things that happened in it. And you know what it seemed like when you had these one-night tournaments? That was always the case. Somebody's going to get beat uh, in a strange way. There's going to be some outside interference from somebody else. Uh, you know, and uh, this one, man, it was no exception. Uh, you know, one of his examples was Randy Rose, who had wrestled the, the, month, the Tuesday before against Tony Charles for the U.S. Junior Championship. He went down, and Charles, in this match, was wrestling Lou Thez, okay? And uh, Charles is about to beat Lou, and uh, 
Randy Rose goes down and interferes in the match and causes Tony to lose the match. So uh, then uh, Rose goes out, and in his match, uh, he ends up, uh, Tony Childs returns the favor. <laughs> the very next match is Rose, and uh, Childs goes down in Rose's match, and he gets Rose eliminated from the tournament. And, and then later on, both LaDuke and the Stomper got disqualified. They were wrestling against each other first round. They do it. They did their normal thing. It was another. The war was on, man. It didn't make any difference whether anybody's going to get a championship match or not. They didn't care. It's who's who's going to bleed the most here, and uh, they went at it like usual, and uh, both got disqualified. So, uh, bottom line, uh, the finals was me against Luthez, you know, and uh, Lou had worked his way. Uh, actually, you know, uh, he didn't have to beat Tony because. Uh, uh, Rose got involved, but Lou ended up in the in the finals with me, and uh, I wrestled uh, Lou. I'd wrestled Lou four times in my career at that point. Wow! And, okay, uh, and I'd never beat Lou, you know. And uh, and in two of those matches, Lou didn't beat me, you know. So on this night, I was extremely lucky, man. I caught him not expecting it. Uh, I don't know that he had, had seen a lot of my matches. Uh, but he went to, for a slam, and I dropped down behind him, and I, I was able to hook my fuller leg lock on him. Wow. And I know he didn't know that hold. <laughs> I mean, wow. But he knew it. as soon as I hooked it that, uh, wow, hey, i got to give this one up. Uh, I'm going to get hurt. So, uh, you know, I, I end up winning the match uh, using the fuller leg lock. Wow. So you and, wrestled. And, uh, going into the, the next week against Harley. So you, you earned that match. So you wrestled Lou four times in your career and the first three times he won. Yeah. Yeah. All right. He, he won. Oh yeah. I mean, gosh, no, uh, but, uh, one of the, to my, <laughs> to my, uh, de defense here, basically mm -hmm. for not ever beating Lou, except for this match was, uh, two of those matches were my first year. Well, I was going to say you were, you were practically, practically still a kid when you were wrestling Lou Thez of all. Of all uh, former heroes or or stars at the time, yeah. I mean, uh, my first two matches with Lou, I was only twenty two years old. Yeah, right. So you know, you ain't gonna beat Lou Thiz at twenty. What's your problem, old. stud? Come on. You know, oh man, I mean, uh, you're asking wow. a lot, man. You yeah. can beat a lot of guys maybe at twenty two, but not that guy. So, you know, so how uh, how long after? How old were you when you got this win? Oh, geez, uh, let's see. This was in uh, 1980. I you was were uh, 30. Yeah, 30 years old. That, uh, that, wait a minute. Uh, 40. I would uh, say 22, 22 years old. You were 20, 20, 32 years old. 32. Okay. 32 I, years. I knew for a long time a lot of things were happening. You were happening. You were 29 years old. So, uh, so still. Still, still a young man in the business, I guess you could say. When you finally got the win over Luthaz, wow! Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I had I had learned a whole lot uh, in that in that past uh, three years. Uh, it probably been uh, it had probably been at least six years since I had wrestled Lou, wow. and uh, and I hadn't seen Lou a whole lot because he did not work territories like most wrestlers did. He right. had such a phenomenal reputation that uh, he just floated around and wrestled where he wanted to, you know, and uh, and he picked and choose. I mean, 
he was such a star and such a big name that if he called you up and said, hey, can I come and work for you Mm -hmm. next week (laughs) or three weeks from now? I give you a notice uh, ahead of time so he could get you, you get him on the card. But, uh, you know, and uh, that was kind of the way you got Lou. I mean, I wasn't expecting to have Lou in this tournament. And he calls me up and he says, I'd like to come down there, see what you're doing. And, uh, you know, wow, I got this tournament. And I go, wow, I'm going to slide you in here, man. Heck yeah, you can come down, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a former NWA champion trying to get into the tournament to become again, face Harley race and become again the NWA champion. So, so on a personal note, one to one face to face, what was he like? with you how did he treat you as a young man in the business uh you mean in the ring or as a as uh, a or uh, both both as a known in the ring he treated me great and I, and the reason for that is i'm almost positive is because he wrestled my grandfather and he wrestled my father wow wow think about that i'm yeah. the third generation that he was in the ring with and uh and he my grandfather was a tough old son of a gun. I know when he wrestled my granddad, he was pretty darn impressed. And my dad was no slouch either. So, wow. you know, uh, wrestling-wise, he was. But what was really cool about him is uh, on this night, there's a big crowd, uh, and it's a big, beautiful building. And after the thing's all over, he says to me, he goes, Ron, he goes, how many did you have here? You know, and uh, so, you know, he said, wow, he goes, he goes, how long have you been down here? I said, uh, well, we started in 1978. This is my second year, third mm-hmm. year in mm-hmm. the territory, this territory. I already been in Knoxville and he knew that he'd been to Knoxville many times. Yeah. So he asked me, you know, and said, how long have you been in this territory? And I said, uh, two years, uh, just a little over two years. And he says, wow, man. He goes, I don't see crowds like this. He says, this looks like a Houston crowd. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, and that was a tremendous compliment because a guy named Paul Bosch was the promoter in Houston Houston and a former wrestler. And uh, Houston had 10,000 every show. Wow. 10,000, 10,000. I mean, you know, it's like, and he said, it reminds me of a Houston crowd. I was like, Wow. So that's so cool. Uh, Remembering uh, the great Luthes. How about attendances? This had to be really big in all three of those major cities in Southeast Alabama, South, South, uh, and the South. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, the, the difference was here that uh, this was the only tournament because it was lose only shot. So Montgomery and Dothan are not going to get this tournament. Okay. They're going to have different set of matches, right? The totally different card than what Mobile had because Mobile's the only one that's going to get the world championship match. But like I said, Charlie mentioned that in the first part of the TV show that if you're in Montgomery or Dothan, uh, you're welcome to come down to Mobile and and see this, this uh, cha- tournament and to see the championship match. So what we were trying to do, Dave, is we were trying to get we, we had, for years, had this uh, three major cities and tried to keep them separated. But we were reaching a point in which people were starting to drive now from Montgomery to Mobile 
because they've become such fans from Dothan to Mobile, back and forth from these three cities, they would drive to the others because business had grown so dramatically. So we had so many more people coming to the matches and it was because sometimes you were getting people from three cities. So uh, Montgomery, you know, the, the last match they had had was at two cage matches. That was the week before. And this house dropped a little bit uh, because this the, their matches was not a cage matches this time. But it was a great card. It was a good enough card to only drop just a small amount, uh, you know. Uh, but basically, their crowd went from uh, 5,300 only down to 4,800. So uh, Dothan dropped a little bit, too, because it didn't have the tournament. But uh, it went from 54 down to 4,900. Uh, so, and Mobile held up very well, man. It dropped only about 100 people from 9,100 to 9,000. And so, uh, you know, Mobile hung in there really, really good because they got this tournament. And uh, tournaments were really popular. I mean, uh, I didn't mind putting booking tournaments at any time because they normally turned out to be really fan favorite deals. So the total for all three of those cities combined was 18,700 fans. All right. It's like we're always sitting under the learning tree when we enjoy these stud casts. It's always just so cool to get this information and just be a part of history. All right. Speaking of the learning tree, we have one and we will have time this week. Let's get it in here. Bonnie Lancaster from Phoenix, Arizona asks, she says, I enjoyed your last stud cast about the difference in TV audience and attendance between Vince McMahon Jr. and all the rest of wrestling in 1985 before she, before he tore it down. Those are my words, not hers. She says, what are your personal feelings about Vince McMahon Jr.? Stud, take your time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, boy. Uh, dog, man. Uh, <laughs> I was expecting to get something about this. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, well, Miss Lancaster of Phoenix, Arizona, uh, I, I'm a him and all here a little bit because I, I have to control myself for this conversation. Uh, I used to live out there, um, Miss Lancaster in Phoenix. Uh, I went to Campbellback High School in mm -hmm. 1963. So uh, that's a beautiful area out there. I love that part of the country. And uh, my dad went out there in uh, 1962. And I uh, was the first person to uh, explode explode wrestling in the state of Arizona. People have been there many times and uh, never was able to get it off the ground. And Dad, Dad managed to do that. Uh, so uh, the, speaking of events, you know, which uh, I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to do a lot of times. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and especially the, with his present situation and, and things that are going on in his life right now, uh, I feel like that uh, that wrestling was very unfortunate, I guess is a good way of putting it, uh, to have Vince McMahon Jr. be the one that ended up uh, with uh, the national television and with all the clout and uh, ended up uh, going the direction he went. Uh, you know, it, it, if it had been somebody else, just maybe anybody else, they might have if they got that television, and I had an opportunity myself to get it, but I didn't want to do it because I was afraid I would become a, a, uh, a, a, a and a, in fear by the entire National Wrestling Alliance about mm -hmm. what's he going to do 
with this national television program. Mm. But uh, uh, God knows if I had done it, when I look back, uh, uh, I think um, that would have been wonderful <laughs> compared to what has happened uh, because by Vince McMahon Jr. getting his hands on it. Uh, you know, uh, that would have been wonderful if I'd had the opportunity. I would have handled it a whole lot differently. But Vince is a very controversial figure. I think I said that earlier. Everybody knows that. Uh, he has, he's, uh, he seems to me, I've never met Vince personally. I've met his father and I really admired his father, Vince McMahon Sr. Mm -hmm. Great guy, tremendous wrestling promoter, uh, came to every NWA meeting, uh, was a member of the NWA for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then wanted to run his own company and be, have his own champion and all that. And I understood why he's in major markets of the Northeast up there. And, uh, you know, uh, so no, I, I hate to him and all here for you, Miss Lancaster, but, uh, I don't have much good say about Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, I do his father, you know, and, uh, and I just think it's a shame that, uh, that, uh, somebody else couldn't have been his boy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I wish, uh, you know, that, uh, that, uh, the wrong guy got in charge of things and, uh, and he, and, and who, who would have ever figured that as strong as wrestling was for all those years from the from 1920s, mm -hmm. uh, to the mid 1980s, uh, then all of these different promoters and all of the thing, everybody's success they were having that anybody could shut it down, that anybody would want to shut it down mm -hmm. is one thing, but that anybody would have the ability to shut it down is another. And, uh, you know, he, if he hadn't had that national television on NBC, he wouldn't have been able to get to where he got. And uh, so uh, it's very unfortunate for, oh, I can't tell you, Miss Lancaster, how many, how many people uh, it was the most unfortunate thing that ever happened in their lives. All the wrestlers, they were wrestling in the mid eighties, all the referees, just about all of them. Vince took a few of them, but uh, not very many, uh, all the promoters, all of those guys, uh, had to walk away from the sport. And, uh, wow, that's heartbreaking. It, it, it's, 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 it's mind boggling, uh, how much, uh, they all suffered yeah. because of one, one man. Wow. It makes me wonder what it would be like to be a fly on the wall between Vince Sr. and Jr. Because you said Sr. was one that he, he played the game. He he went to the NWA meetings in Las Vegas. You knew him. He was a, he was a stand-up guy. And then there's Vince. So it makes me wonder what the conversations between those two were about. Oh, yeah. If, yeah. if, 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 if Sr. was fighting Jr. to stop, don't tear up the territories, that kind of thing. I don't know. That's a... That's a, that's amazing, and that's a story that may never be told. All right, Stud, another great one this week. Where do we ride next week? Well, uh, we're going to be uh, going. We're going to be doing that hidden, hidden, hidden history lesson that I didn't get to today. Uh, the one that I planned on uh, that got postponed here, basically because I had these two guys that had so much great facts, uh, and they presented them to me, and I wanted to cover the uh, finish up with. Uh, with uh, my feelings about uh, what could have happened for wrestling and, and how much better things were than people realize 
and how much worse they are now than people realize. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm going to cover the part of uh, professional wrestling history that's going to take us back next week to the early 1900s. And I'm going to discuss what most people have no idea about at all is the tremendous relationship that developed between wrestlers and carnivals around the country back in those days, why that happened, mm. how that happened. And uh, my grandfather told me this story that I'm going to tell next week when I was 12 years old. And I'll <laughs> never forget him explaining to me what it was like to wrestle on the valley in these carnivals out west. It's pretty amazing. Wow. And uh, then we're going to find out about the fantastic card in Mobile's 10,000-seat main arena, man, me against Harley Race for the NWA World Championship. That one's going to be next week. We'll be talking about that match, and uh, we'll talk about uh, three other title matches on that same card. Uh, and one of them is going to be an I Quit match for the Southeastern Championship between Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Stomper. And, uh, and that type of match, it, the match goes until one of them is going to take the microphone and say, I quit. <laughs> and oh my goodness, I have no <laughs> wow talking about these two. Who's going to do that? I can't see either one of those two guys. Uh, you know, uh, so we're going to talk about that match next week. And uh, you know, uh, and I want to thank everybody, obviously, man, for for all we do. Good deal. All right, you have exposed Vince McMahon Jr. for. Uh, who he really is a greedy man willing to toss thousands of people in his same business under the bus to save a few bucks. I will now give you an opportunity to apologize. If you like stud, <laughs> I think it's too late to apologize. <laughs> All right. Undoubtedly the people at Google believed someone at his business that, that it was much larger than it really was in every way. So I think you may have made history in the last two stud cast, Ron. No doubt about it. That's been a lot of fun. Hey, folks, you know the deal on Facebook. Find Ron at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there and automatically become friends with a living legend. The same thing on Twitter, now known as X. Ron Fuller Welch, follow him there too. Everything that happens on Twitter also happens on Facebook. So whichever one you keep up with, that works. Listen, check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com, tnstud.com. This studcast is going to be there. This one that we're doing right now is going to be there. Every studcast ever done. Shop the stud store where you can get 43 super studcasts, four different 8x10 photos, the thrilling lion novel called Brutus, personally autographed to you, and t-shirts still on sale, only $15.99, all with free shipping subscribe now at youtube southeastern rewind get the best in old school wrestling find 397 videos the last 115 stud casts 52 stud stories 102 short rides with the stud and now 14 ask the stud question and answer shows all of this exclusively on youtube southeastern rewind it is the best deal in old school wrestling any final comments stud yeah, I want to thank everyone for making my studcast, man. At this point, one of the most listened to in the world. You know, I really, really appreciate it. I, and I, I want to uh, offer this special thanks to Mr. Arenes and Mr. Harder for their helpful information that uh, I was able to use during this broadcast. And uh, 
And please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.